This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, online at reformedforum.org. This is Reformed Classics, audio productions of classic Reformed works. Today, we're continuing our presentation of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. Book 1, Chapter 16. The world created by God, still cherished and protected by Him, each and all of its parts governed by His providence. Sections 5. Special providence of God asserted and proved by arguments founded on a consideration of the divine justice and mercy, proved also by passages of Scripture, relating to the sky, the earth, and animals. 6. Special providence proved by passages relating to the human race, and the more especially that for its sake the world was created. 7. Special providence proved lastly from examples taken from the history of the Israelites, of Jonah, Jacob, and from daily experience. 8. Erroneous views as to providence refuted, the sect of the Stoics, and the fortune and chance of the heathen. And 9. How things are said to be fortuitous to us, though done by the determinate counsel of God. Example, error of separating contingency and event from the secret, but just and most wise counsel of God. Two examples. Section 5. Assuming that the beginning of motion belongs to God, but that all things move spontaneously or casually, according to the impulse which nature gives, the vicissitudes of day and nights, summer and winter, will be the work of God, inasmuch as he, in assigning the office of each, appointed a certain law, namely that they should always with uniform tenor observe the same course, day succeeding night, month succeeding month, and year succeeding year. But as at one time excessive heat combined with drought burns up the fields, at another time excessive rains rot the crops, while sudden devastation is produced by tempests and storms of hail, these will not be the works of God unless insofar as rainy or fair weather, heat or cold, are produced by the concourse of the stars and other natural causes. According to this view, there is no place left either for the paternal favor or the judgments of God. If it is said that God fully manifests his beneficence to the human race, by furnishing heaven and earth with the ordinary power of producing food, the explanation is meager and heathenish, as if the fertility of one year were not a special blessing, the penury and dearth of another a special punishment and curse from God. But as it would occupy too much time to enumerate all the arguments, let the authority of God himself suffice. In the law and the prophets he repeatedly declares, that as often as he waters the earth with dew and rain, he manifests his favor, that by his command the heaven becomes hard as iron, the crops are destroyed by mildew and other evils, that storms and hail and devastating the fields are signs of sure and special vengeance. This being admitted, it is certain that not a drop of rain falls without the express command of God. David, indeed, in Psalm 146.9, extols the general providence of God, and supplying food to the young ravens that cry to him. But when God himself threatens living creatures with famine, 
does he not plainly declare that they are all nourished by him, at one time with scanty, at another time with more ample measure? It is childish, as I have already said, to confine this to particular acts, when Christ says without reservation that not a sparrow falls to the ground without the will of his Father. Matthew 10.29 Surely, if the flight of birds is regulated by the counsel of God, we must acknowledge with the prophet that while he dwelleth on high, he humbleth himself to behold the things that are in heaven and in the earth. Psalm 113.5 and 6 Section 6 But as we know that it was chiefly for the sake of mankind that the world was made, we must look to this as the end which God has in view in the government of it. The prophet Jeremiah exclaims, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23 Solomon again says, Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Proverbs 20.24 Will it now be said that man is moved by God according to the bent of his nature? but that man himself gives the movement any direction he pleases? Were it truly so, man would have the full disposal of his own ways. To this it will perhaps be answered that man can do nothing without the power of God, but the answer will not avail, since both Jeremiah and Solomon attribute to God not power only, but also election and decree. And Solomon, in another place, elegantly rebukes the rashness of men in fixing their plans without reference to God, as if they were not led by his hand. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, Proverbs 16.1. It is a strange infatuation, surely for miserable men, who cannot even give utterance except insofar as God pleases, to begin to act without him. Scriptures, moreover, the better to show that everything done in the world is according to his decree, declares that the things which seem so fortuitous are subject to him. For what seems more attributable to chance than the branch which falls from a tree and kills the passing traveler? But the Lord sees very differently, and declares that he delivered him into the hand of the slayer. Exodus 21.13 In like manners, who does not attribute the lot to the blindness of fortune. Not so the Lord who claims the decision for himself, Proverbs 16.33. He says not that by his power the lot is thrown into the lap and taken out, but declares that the only thing which could be attributed to chance is from him. To the same effect are the words of Solomon, the poor and the deceitful man meet together. The Lord lighteneth both their eyes, Proverbs 29.13. For although rich and poor are mingled together in the world, and saying that the condition of each is divinely appointed, he reminds us that God, who enlightens all, has his own eye always open, and thus exhorts the poor to patient endurance, seeing that those who are discontented with their lot endeavor to shake off a burden which God has imposed upon them. Thus, too, another prophet upbraids the profane, who ascribe it to human industry or to fortune, as some grovel in the mire while others rise to honor. Promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He putteth down ones, and setteth up another. Psalm 75, 6, and 7. Because God cannot divest himself of the office of judge, he infers that to his secret counsel it is owing that some are elevated, while others remain without honor. Section 7. 
Nay, I affirm in general that particular events are evidences of the special providence of God. In the wilderness, God caused a south wind to blow and brought the people a plentiful supply of birds, Exodus 19.13. When he desired that Jonah should be thrown into the sea, he sent forth a whirlwind. Those who deny that God holds the reins of government will say that this was contrary to ordinary practice, whereas I infer from it that no wind ever rises or rages without his special command. In no way could it be true that he maketh the winds his messengers and the flames of fire his ministers, that he maketh the clouds his chariot and walketh upon the wings of the wind, Psalm 104, 3 and 4. Did he not at pleasure drive the clouds and winds and therein manifest the special presence of his power? In like manner, we are elsewhere taught that whenever the sea is raised into a storm, its billows attest the special presence of God. He commandeth and raiseth the stormy wind which lifteth up the waves. He maketh the storm a calm so that the waves thereof are still. Psalm 107, 25 and 29. He also elsewhere declares that he had smitten the people with blasting and mildew, Amos 4.9. Again, while man naturally possesses the power of continuing his species, God describes it as a mark of his special favor, that while some continue childless, others are blessed with offspring. For the fruit of the womb is his gift. Hence the words of Jacob to Rachel, Am I in God's stead who has withheld from thee the fruit of the womb? Genesis 32. To conclude in one word, nothing in nature is more ordinary than that we should be nourished with bread. But the Spirit declares not only that the produce of the earth is God's special gift, but that man does not live by bread alone, Deuteronomy 8.3, because it is not mere fullness that nourishes him, but the secret blessing of God. And hence, on the other hand, he threatens to take away the stay and the staff, the whole stay of bread and the whole stay of water, Isaiah 3.1. Indeed, there could be no serious meaning in our prayer for daily bread if God did not with paternal hand supply us with food. Accordingly, to convince the faithful that God, in feeding them, fulfills the office of the best of parents, the prophet reminds them that he giveth food to all flesh, Psalm 136.25. In fine, when we hear, on the one hand, that the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous, and his ears are open unto their cry. And on the other hand, that the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth, Psalm 34, 15, and 16. Let us be assured that all creatures above and below are ready at his service, that he may employ them in whatever way he pleases. Hence we infer not only that the general providence of God, continuing the order of nature, extends over the creatures, but that by his wonderful counsel, They are adapted to a certain and special providence. Section 8 Those who would cast obloquy on this doctrine calumniate it as the dogma of the Stoics concerning fate. The same charge was formerly brought against Augustine. We are unwilling to dispute about words, but we do not admit the term fate, both because it is of the class which Paul teaches us to shun, as profane novelties, 1 Timothy 6.20, and also because it is attempted by means of an odious term to fix a stigma on the truth of God. But the dogma itself is falsely and maliciously imputed to us. For we do not, with the Stoics, imagine a necessity consisting of a perpetual chain of causes, 
and a kind of involved series contained in nature. But we hold that God is the disposer and ruler of all things, that from the remotest eternity, according to his own wisdom, he decreed what he was to do, and now by his power executes what he decreed. Hence we maintain that by his providence, not heaven and earth and inanimate creatures only, but also the counsels and wills of men are so governed as to move exactly in the course which he has destined. What then, you will say, does nothing happen fortuitously, nothing contingently? I answer, it was a true saying of Basil the Great that fortune and chance are heathen terms, the meaning of which ought not to occupy pious minds. For if all success is a blessing from God, and calamity and adversity are his curse, there is no place left in human affairs for fortune and chance. We ought also to be moved by the words of Augustine. In my writings against the academics, says he, I regret having so often used the term fortune, although I intended to denote by it not some goddess, but the fortuitous issue of events and external matters, whether good or evil. Hence, too, those words, perhaps, perchance, fortuitously, which no religion forbids us to use, though everything must be referred to divine providence. Nor did I omit to observe this when I said, although, perhaps, that which is vulgarly called fortune is also regulated by a hidden order, and what we call chance is nothing else than that the reason and cause of which is secret. It is true I so spoke, but I repent of having mentioned fortune there as I did, when I see the very bad custom which men have of saying, not as they ought to do, so God pleased, but so fortune pleased. In short, Augustine everywhere teaches that if anything is left to fortune, the world moves at random. And although he elsewhere declares that all things are carried on, partly by the free will of man and partly by the providence of God, he shortly after shows clearly enough that his meaning was that men also are ruled by providence, when he assumes it as a principle, that there cannot be a greater absurdity than to hold that anything is done without the ordination of God because it would happen at random. For which reason he also excludes the contingency which depends on human will, maintaining a little further on, in clearer terms, that no cause must be sought for but the will of God. When he uses the term permission, the meaning which he attaches to it will best appear from a single passage, where he proves that the will of God is the supreme and primary cause of all things, because nothing happens without his order or permission. He certainly does not figure God sitting idly in a watchtower when he chooses to permit anything. The will which he represents as interposing is, if I may so express it, active, and but for this could not be regarded as a cause. Section 9 But since our sluggish minds rest far beneath the height of divine providence, we must have recourse to a distinction which may assist them in rising. I say then that though all things are ordered by the counsel and certain arrangement of God to us, however, they are fortuitous, not because we imagine that fortune rules the world and mankind and turns all things upside down at random, far be such a heartless thought from every Christian breast, but as the order, method, end, and necessity of events are, for the most part, hidden in the counsel of God, though it is certain that they are produced by the will of God. They have the appearance of being fortuitous, such being the form under which they present themselves to us, whether considered in their own nature, 
or estimated according to our knowledge and judgment. Let us suppose, for example, that a merchant, after entering a forest in company with trustworthy individuals, imprudently strays from his companions and wanders, bewildered, till he falls into a den of robbers and is murdered. His death was not only foreseen by the eye of God, but had been fixed by his decree. For it is said not that he foresaw how far the life of each individual should extend, but that he determined and fixed the bounds which could not be passed. Job 14.5 Still, in relation to our capacity of discernment, all these things appear fortuitous. How will the Christian feel? Though he will consider that every circumstance which occurred in that person's death was indeed in its nature fortuitous, he will have no doubt that the providence of God overruled it and guided fortune to his own end. The same thing holds in the case of future contingencies. All future events being uncertain to us seem in suspense as if ready to take either direction. Still, however, the impression remains seated in our hearts that nothing will happen which the Lord has not provided. In this sense, the term event is repeatedly used in Ecclesiastes, because at the first glance men do not penetrate to the primary cause which lies concealed. And yet, what is taught in Scripture of the secret providence of God was never so completely effaced from the human heart as that some sparks did not always shine in the darkness. Thus the soothsayers of the Philistine, though they waver in uncertainty, attribute the adverse event partly to God and partly to chance. If the ark, say they, goes up by the way of his own coast to Beth Shemesh, then he has done us this great evil. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that smote us. It was a chance that happened to us. 1 Samuel 6, 9 Foolishly, indeed, when divination fails them, they flee to fortune. Still we see them constrained, so as not to venture to regard their disaster as fortuitous. But the mode in which God, by the curb of his providence, turns events in whatever direction he pleases, will appear from a remarkable example. At the very same moment when David was discovered in the wilderness of Maon, the Philistines made an inroad into the country, and Saul is forced to depart, 1 Samuel 23, 26, 27. If God, in order to provide for the safety of his servant, threw this obstacle in the way of Saul, we surely cannot say that though the Philistine took up arms contrary to human expectation, they did it by chance. What seems to us contingents, faith will recognize as the secret impulse of God. The reason is not always equally apparent, but we ought undoubtedly to hold that all the changes which take place in the world are produced by the secret agency of the hand of God. At the same time, that which God has determined, though it must come to pass, is not, however, precisely or in its own nature necessary. We have a familiar example in the case of our Savior's bones. As he assumed a body similar to ours, no sane man will deny that his bones were capable of being broken, and yet it was impossible that they should be broken. John 19:33 and 36. Hence again we see that there was good ground for the distinction which the schoolmen made between necessity, secundum quid, and necessity absolute, also between the necessity of consequent and of consequence. God made the bones of his son frangible, though he exempted them from actual fracture, and thus, in reference to the necessity of his counsel, made that impossible which might have naturally taken place.